This is They Create Worlds, Episode 56, Revisions and Updates. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. It's the holiday season, Alex. I suppose it is. Seeing as this episode comes out on the 15th of December, maybe we need to have a little bit of They Create Worlds advent. Ah, 56 days of They Create Worlds. That's right. 56 (laughs) days of They Create Worlds. All condensed into somewhere between one and two hours for your listening pleasure. Something like that. In this episode, we are going to cover They Create World. Everything. From episode one to episode... We don't think we need to talk about that anymore. That's right. We've been doing this, as we've said before, for just a bit over two years now. And obviously my research keeps going on because theoretically one of these days I'm going to write these book things I talk about occasionally. So I've been doing research constantly over the next two years, so I'm always discovering new things. So it comes to pass that certainly our episodes from two years ago have pieces that are obsolete. Sometimes I discover something two weeks after we do an episode that has already rendered it obsolete. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go episode by episode and kind of get an update on what New information has been found, what may have changed, what I understand better now than I did when we first did it. We're not going to have something for every episode. We're not going to hit every single last one of them, but we'll at least mention every single last one of them up to somewhere in the 40s or 50s. Exactly. So this was just a way to kind of see where the research is going, what new things have been discovered by me and other people, and uh, should hopefully be a, a nice, light, fun episode here. Mostly the reason for doing this is we can't really recap a complete episode on every single thing that has happened. We can't redo certain episodes because, well, all that changed is a few fine details. Right. What this allows us to do is just touch on every single episode and be, okay, in this episode, such and such changed, and here's some new up-to-date information on it. Exactly. Well, that's pretty simple. Let's get right into it. All righty. What do we have first, Mr. Jeffrey? First, we have episode one. All I can do is ask why. Of course, this was basically just the episode where we introduced ourselves, introduced what we hope to do with the podcast, and introduced some of what I've been doing outside of the podcast and just kind of who we are. So we are still They Create Worlds. I think we have still managed to meet our goals and objectives from the very beginning of providing an episode twice a month that goes over some aspect of video game history. I mean, that that part really hasn't changed. That's still us, right? Yeah, except there was this other jerk back then named Jeff before Jeffrey. I don't know what (laughs) happened to that guy. I think we fired him. And uh, I'm sure you've noticed if you've been with us long enough that the or if you've gone and listened to the back catalog that the sound quality has greatly improved. One thing I think we did mention in the first episode that part of the reason we decided to do this podcast is Jeffrey really wanted to get involved in audio editing just for his own edification and knew that he needed some kind of regular thing 
to keep him interested. And so he came up with the idea of doing a podcast. Since learning how to do audio was one of the goals for doing the podcast, obviously our audio has improved as time has gone on. Is there anything in particular you wanted to highlight in that regard? Well, I know that the audio then was pretty bad. (laughs) If you listen to that episode. However, it's not as bad as episode 1A. <laughs> no true. one except for us has heard episode 1A. Which does still exist. It does still exist. Maybe one of these days I'll take episode 1A, run it through modern audio changes, <laughs> and traumatize you people with it. Or not. Yeah, Of course, the first few episodes, we were not even recording in the same room. We do live close to each other, uh, so it's no burden for us to get together. But at first, we had microphones in our respective houses and did the first, I don't know how many. It was more than just the first one. We did a a couple that way. Up to the first 10 or so that way. Yeah. I want to say. Actually, we did the changeover whenever I bought another Heil microphone for you to use. Yes. And we decommissioned the Shure SM48 that you were using. Mm-hmm. So and, it, and, it lives over there in the corner. Yes. And the main reason for doing so, other than the fact that all of the fancy sound equipment was over here, was because we did want to be able to play off of each other a little bit. And that's a lot harder to do when you can't read visual cues. Because we weren't even using, like, webcams to keep track of each other. And even with webcam, you have a little bit of lag, so... Uh, it's much nicer to be able to see each other while we do this. Yeah, even if the microphones are in our way. Yes. Darn you, microphone. They are relatively small microphones in comparison to the size of human beings, so we, we do okay there. That's all right. So what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned about audio since we started that has gone to a direct improvement in the, in the quality of the episodes? Don't do destructive editing. <laughs> Originally, everything was edited in... Audacity. And Audacity is a free open source program. So when I had to change things around and go like, you know, that doesn't really sound right and run this entire audio processor through the entire file and then it changes things in another part that I didn't realize it did. And then I had to revert it and then the thing crashes and then there's sadness and despair and I have to start from the beginning. It's just nightmarish. And then when I switched over to using Reaper, it was literally night and day. Reaper is relatively inexpensive and lets me do non-destructive editing. And if I want to go change something, I can turn it on and off and just see how things sound differently. I can have this sound differently and that sound differently. Well, that covers episode one. Episode two. You talked to whom? Right. So this was, we kind of did a two-part introduction. There was some benefit to this. It let us kind of get used to the whole recording process without having to get too involved in the also providing tidbits about video game history. So we kind of did a two-part introduction. The second part was kind of who I'd been talking to. Obviously, that has changed a lot since 2015 because I am constantly interviewing new people. I compiled a list of people that I interviewed uh, the other day just for fun. Uh, And at that time, I had reached 90 interview subjects. I'm up to 93 now because I've interviewed three people since. So I've talked to 93 people who are in some way, shape or form connected to the video game industry. Some of the more interesting ones since that time since that 
2015 episode, some of which have, have come up on the show, but I've, I've gotten in with a few Nintendo people. I hadn't really talked to anyone from Nintendo at that time, very few, and I've talked to Howard Lincoln now, who was the chairman, and before that, senior vice president, George Harrison, who was in charge of marketing for a long time, Gail Tilden, who ran Nintendo Power, so that's been kind of cool. Uh, another one that was kind of cool, which we'll talk about a little later when we get to their episode, is the founder of Nutting Associates. He's passed on, but I talked to both his eldest son and his widow. So that was pretty nice. It gave me some more information on Bill Nutting the Man. Just recently, I had the great privilege to talk to James Morgan, the very brief CEO of Atari, for about nine months in 83 and 84. So definitely gets a lot more information about that when we go back and hit our Ataris. Absolutely. And I'm also in the process of writing an article for the Video Game History Foundation on the origin of electronic arts. So I've been talking to a lot more people that were there in the early days. I'd already talked to quite a few. I'd already talked to Trip. Of course, in our electronic arts episode, I talked about how I had talked to both Trip Hawkins and Rich Melman and how they remembered some of the details of the founding of the company differently. I'd already talked to quite a few people, but I've talked to some more. I talked to Dave Evans, who was the very first producer at Electronic Arts. I also talked to Susan Lee Marrow and Don Daglow, who were both early producers. I talked to Joey Barra, another very early producer. And uh, Jeff Goodby, who was their early ad man, and a few others. So I've really been hitting them hard. And I've I've talked to a whole bunch of other people, some of which have come up in this, some of which have not. Uh, Ron Chamowitz, for instance, who was the... CEO of GT Interactive, which was a big publisher in the middle of the 1990s. Uh, I've talked to him. We haven't done an episode on GT, so that's not a name that's come up, but I hadn't talked to him yet in 2015 when we did this episode. I have had two additional deaths. We talked about how one person I talked to had died, Dave Morofsky. So I've had two additional ones now. The first one is actually someone that I had talked to even after this episode aired, Paul Moriarty, who was the general manager and later president of Taito America. He was there from the founding of Taito America in 1973. He was an old army buddy of Ed Miller. So when Ed Miller was tasked with founding Taito America, he just called up Paul and was like, hey, what you doing? He's like, not much. And he's like, ah, come be at this company with me. He's like, okay. So he was there from the very beginning. And then he was there all the way till 1987, uh, general manager and then president. Turned out, I'm pretty sure that when I interviewed him, he already had cancer. Um, I mean, he did not reveal that to me while we were talking, because he died of cancer just like four months, I think, after we did our interview. And uh, as far as I know, he is someone who had never been interviewed before from a historical retrospective perspective. So uh, there, was a, there was a guy who I got his story, I guess, uh, just in time. <laughs> just under the wire, so to speak. Yeah. So um, the other death happened actually just very, very recently, uh, November 21st of this year. And that's Tom Pettit. Tom Pettit was the longtime president of Sega Enterprises USA, which is not Sega of America. It's the arcade company. He also held positions at Atari, Data East, Nintendo, Acclaim Coin-Op, which was a short-lived thing. And he founded the console division at Vivendi Games because they hadn't had one before since Sierra was the major part of Vivendi Games. And as we said before, uh, Ken Williams didn't want anything to do with the console business. So he got around quite a bit in the industry, and he's one of the people I talked to back in 2009 in kind of the first round of people I talked to. So again, it probably wasn't as good as some of my other interviews, but I got some decent information out of him. 
more recently, Ken Horowitz, who's been writing a book that should be coming out early next year on the history of Sega's arcade games, also just recently interviewed him quite extensively. Tom Petta wasn't that old, really. He was only 62. I'm not sure what the cause of death was, but certainly not someone we were expecting to lose at this juncture. But again, someone that myself and in this case, also Ken Horowitz got to just in time. So especially in Ken's case, this really illustrates that it's not just you who's doing all of these interviews, but it's also many other people trying to do these interviews in order to capture these people's thoughts and histories before their loss. Yeah, I keep talking to people. Uh, Other people that I associate with keep talking to people, and we're trying to talk to as many people as we can that have something interesting to say while they're still around to talk to. And certainly are a great source for more and more information, if for nothing else than a different perspective. Next episode, episode three. So with episode three, that was kind of our first historical content episode. We were talking in general about what makes an industry, and then we gave a few examples of some of the boom and bust cycles that had occurred that kind of aborted an industry from being formed at earlier times. We kind of came to the conclusion that the video game industry is a distinct organ from the toy industry or the consumer electronics industry or the computer industry or whatever else you want to call it, really probably formed in the early 90s at the time when you had the ISDA and the uh, ESRB, the Electronic Software Ratings Board, being formed. So they had their own lobbying organization, their own ratings organization, and this, this feels like the moment. Nothing really to add there. I still think that. Well, it's pretty much just us defining what is an industry, what makes the entertainment industry, the entertainment industry, the video game industry, the video game industry. And the the opinions and conclusions I had at that time are still the opinions and conclusions I have today, so there's really no update on that front. All righty. Now, this is the next episode, episode four, A Tale of Cycles, is another one of the sort of us easing into the whole video game history thing, because... Just like how the previous episode talked about what is an industry, this one goes into the tale of cycles. How do we have video game consoles rise and fall? What are Mm -hmm. the cycles that make up any kind of industry? And the only thing really to add there is the way things are changing today. Of course, we just just recently, really just recently at the time this episode's being recorded, had the release of the Xbox One X the more advanced version of the Xbox One that has more horsepower for powering virtual reality and 4K displays and all of this really fancy stuff. And before that, we had the PlayStation 4 Pro come out. So the big change here is that none of that had happened yet. We were still relatively early in the current generation, and we didn't know how this one was going to play out. I believe we did talk about how the previous generation, the we PlayStation 3, 360 generation, was itself an unusual generation because instead of the normal roughly five-year cycle, it was a much longer, more seven-year cycle because the consoles were getting more expensive and companies wanted to stretch that cycle as long as they possibly could. Now what we're seeing is the console makers potentially going to the same cycle as the phone manufacturers do because of course your iphones and your android phones are on these two-year product cycles where every two years they try to convince you to upgrade to a new phone you always had moore's law driving things of course this idea that power doubles 
every 18 months. Uh, you can do twice as much on a chip of the same size, or you can do the same amount on a chip half the size, depending on how you want to look at it, every 18 months. That's been Moore's Law that has worked pretty well for a lot of decades. It's been a little dicey in recent years. We might be nearing the end of Moore's Law, but it's been about right for a long time now. So you always had that technology improving at that rate of about every 18 months. But obviously, you didn't want to upgrade a console more than every five to seven years because part of the advantage of a console over, say, a PC is that you have the stability. Everybody knows how that platform works for five years. So in the beginning, you're kind of at the head of the technology curve, but the system may be more difficult to get everything out of because people don't understand it yet. By year five, the technology is far behind where a PC is at this point, but your developers really understand the hardware so they can make amazing games with it. And consumers know that they have a system that works, that they don't have to worry about swapping out a video card or putting more RAM in or anything like that over the course of the cycle. So that's kind of been the status quo. Now, though, consumers are used to the idea of every two years getting themselves a more expensive piece of hardware because they do it with their phones. And it looks like the console companies are going to try to emulate that. So you have the PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X. It's the same console and will be backwards compatible. I'm sure everyone listening knows that, but it will be more powerful. It will power that 4K display, which has still not been widely adopted. It'll power that VR rig, which has still not been widely adopted. We sort of saw this a little bit with Nintendo and the 3DS, the new 3DS, the more powerful version of the same thing that has better capabilities and only certain games will work on it. Yes, well, I mean, and like I said, only certain games will work on it. This is full backwards compatibility. Not a single game that is released in the era of Xbox One X will only work on an Xbox One X. It'll be higher frame rate or prettier. or a higher resolution kind of thing, maybe more background images, etc. So it's not quite that. But yeah, I mean, Nintendo has been releasing upgrades to its handhelds for a long time. They were usually not drastic upgrades like the new 3DS, but I mean, there was the Game Boy Advance and then there was the Game Boy Advance SP. There was the the DS and the DSi and the DSXL and, yeah, I mean, all those different variants. Handhelds are a little cheaper, so that's a little easier sell. I mean, this is, we're talking about consoles, multi-hundreds of dollar consoles. And it'll be interesting to see how that works. This is the first time this has been done. Will they really be able to get consumers to upgrade on a two-year cycle? Is that even what they're trying to do? Well, is this just a one-off because these consoles happened to hit at a really strange time when 4K wasn't really a thing when the consoles launched, but the hardware companies were afraid that 4K was going to be a big thing by the time the console cycle was over? And maybe the 4K to 8K transition doesn't happen in the middle of a console transition, and so they don't feel they need to do that next time? It's too early to see whether this is a trend, but... One thing that could be changing in the tale of cycles is they could be trying to emulate that phone market where every two years or so we give you an upgrade and maybe console generations go away because of this. Maybe it's just every two years something new comes out and maybe on the fourth version of the Xbox One, they finally cut off compatibility from the original version of the Xbox One. I'm just throwing random names out there. Maybe they try that. Maybe they try for a continuous cycle. 
maybe there's still going to be a, a PlayStation 5 and an Xbox 2 in a few years. It's too early to tell, but there's definitely something happening with console cycles that's different. And that was not apparent yet when we did this episode in October of 2015. And now we go to our first proper video game history, the untold story of Sega. That's right. We basically were just discussing how the company formed out of all of these other strange American companies that had sprung up in Japan and this whole global service games complex based in Panama and all of this crazy stuff that people didn't really know about. Some of that story is becoming more commonplace now. There's not much to add here from what we talked about then. One thing I will say is that I have learned that every single place or source that gives a founding date for service games, which is the company that you can most closely trace to the modern Sega, is wrong. Everyone says that service games was founded in Hawaii in 1945. And this is even sources um, when the federal government was doing investigations of Sega in the in the 60s and 70s. I, I believe their government sources said 1945 as well. So this was a long established date for the founding of service games. I was going through uh, a couple of months ago, I was actually going through newspapers.com premium subscription to it, which had the uh, Honolulu advertiser in it, the Honolulu paper. You may recall that service games was originally a Hawaii company. So it turns out that in that period, they would announce in the paper when new partnerships were formed. Corporations have to be registered with the Secretary of State's office. Of course, this was before uh, Hawaii was a state. It was still a territory. But corporations have to be registered with the Secretary of State's office. So if you want to see when a corporation was founded, you can go to the Secretary of State's office and see when the papers were filed. Generally speaking, partnerships do not have to be registered in any way. There's usually not an official public record that indicates when a partnership's been established. It just so happens that the Hawaii paper was publishing notices of new partnerships at this time. So there was a, an announcement for the formation of service games in the newspaper. I think it was in a December 1946 issue. And it said that the company had started operating on 1 September 1946. So there you have it. Service Games was not established in 1945. It was established in 1946. And that's really the only thing I want to add to what we talked about in this particular episode. And I don't recall, but the entire story of that episode came from us suffering from a power outage and talking about Vega in my basement. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like that. The next episode, episode six, is the first part of what seemed to be a, we touch on them occasionally, the early history of electronic arts. That's right. Soon to be an article for the Video Game History Foundation brought to you by yours truly. At least that's the hope. A little bit to add here because I've been inter interviewing additional people. I talked to Dave Evans, like I said, who is the first producer at the company. I also talked to Bing Gordon, who was Tripp's good friend back in those days and was involved from nearly the beginning in marketing and stayed longer than any of the other founding people in the company, stayed with the company all the way to 2008, talked to him. And I've also looked online at some talks that have been given by Jeff Burton, who was one of the early employees of the company, who's 
Yeah, I haven't talked to him, but he's spoken about his electronic arts experience some. So just a couple of things to add. The way Dave Evans tells it, Dave Evans was literally the very first person that was recruited into electronic arts. Because what happened is Tripp was considering founding the software company that had been in the back of his mind for years. This computer game company, I should say, specifically. So he went into Mike Markle's office at Apple, because you may recall that he was a product marketing manager for the Lisa at Apple. And at this time, Apple was organized entirely around products. So there was the Lisa team with, with its own marketing. There was the Macintosh team with its own marketing. There was the Apple III team with its own marketing. And the way Dave Evans tells the story is Tripp walked into Mike Markla's office and said, basically, one of two things are going to happen. You are going to make me the head of marketing for everything Apple does. You know, I have a unified VP or whatever of marketing, or I am going to leave the company and found my own computer software company, my own computer game company. So then he went on. Dave Evans was not in the room when this was going on. He's getting the second hand just to make that clear. But at that point, Tripp starts laying out all the reasons why he thinks that there should be a, a unified marketing department at Apple. And when he gets done, Mike Markula says to him, so tell me more about this computer game company you're going to be founding. In other words, <laughs> no. wasn't going to make him head <laughs> of marketing at Apple. So uh, then Dave says that as soon as Tripp walked out of Mike Markula's office, he went over to, to Dave and told him, you're coming with me to found uh, a new computer game company. He didn't ask. <laughs> he kind of told. <laughs> but but Dave Evans was down for that. So Dave Evans was literally the first person recruited. That doesn't mean that he was necessarily employee number one, because at this time the company wasn't founded at that moment. But he was the first person recruited. So Tripp, uh, sometime after this, had a, a dinner at his house. This is something that I've learned about. Both Dave Evans and Jeff Burton uh, talk about this. There's a dinner at Tripp's house. And he invites five people to join him there. Uh, Dave Evans is one of them. Pat Marriott, who is also at Apple and is also working with Trip on the Lisa. Both Dave and Pat are project managers under Trip on the Lisa. There's Rich Melman, who we talked about at length. And then there's Jeff Burton and Bing Gordon, who are both business school pals of Trip. We've, we've talked about them before, so I don't have to go into all that. And he basically lays out the entire vision of the company to these five people and then goes around the room and asks them, are you in or out? And not just are you in or out, but why do you want to be a part of this? So they do that. And, and most of them are in. Bing Gordon, I think we talked about in the previous episode here in episode six, Bing Gordon waffles for a while. He doesn't join right away like the others do, but he is present at this first meeting. That's kind of the beginning of the company in a way. And I think that's part of the reason why so many of these people call themselves co-founders. We talked about that, the founder versus co-founder thing with Trip. The company, to my knowledge, had been founded before then in the sense that Trip had incorporated it and already put some of his money into it. But I think for the people that were at that dinner, that feels like the beginning of the company. And it's interesting. Dave Evans says that Trip Hawkins was fine with those people calling themselves co-founders. If that's true, he has very much changed his tune since. He, he gets somewhat upset when other 
people other than himself are labeled as co-founders of the company. He maintains he's the original founder. But according to Dave, at least at one point, they had permission to call themselves co-founders. So that may be part of where the confusion of founder versus co-founder comes from. I don't know. So the other thing I learned a little more about actually comes from Bing Gordon. I believe we talked in the episode, though I could be wrong, about how there was a little bit of confusion surrounding Rich Melman's departure from the company. Most people within the company indicated that the thing that really went wrong in 1983 is that they missed their projections, they missed their sales targets, and that's why Rich Melman ended up being forced out of the company, because at the end of the day, he was the top guy in sales. I mean, there was a sales manager below him, but he was VP of sales and marketing. Rich himself, when I talked to him, said that the major point of contention was that he wanted to move the company into productivity software, consumer software of a non-game variety. And when that software didn't pan out, that's when he was asked to leave the company. Uh, I believe, it's been a while since I've listened to this episode, that we talked about how that didn't seem to make sense because Rich Melman was definitely out of the company by the time... EA released its first productivity software in early 1984 because he was gone before the end of 1983. Bing provides a little more insight on that discrepancy. Basically, the way Bing remembers it is that they did have that bad first holiday in 1983. It was because their sales were insufficient. They didn't meet their sales targets. What Bing remembers, though, is at that point, Rich did manage to convince Trip that they should perhaps even dump the games thing entirely and focus on this whole consumer productivity thing instead. It's interesting to note that, as Bing reminded me, there were very few people in the company in the early days that actually cared much about games. I mean, I think Trip legitimately cared about games. Bing, to a degree, cared about games. But Rich Melman didn't. Uh, Dave Evans didn't. I mean, Dave Evans himself told me that. Many of the early producers didn't, other than Joe Ibarra. And so it wasn't a given, despite the fact that Electronic Arts was founded to be a computer game company. Because of the staff involved, it wasn't a given that it would actually stay that way. The way Bing tells it, there was a very real possibility that the game thing might be de-emphasized after that first disastrous holiday season. So that's why they got involved in that productivity stuff early the next year, which did fail spectacularly. And they kind of came back to their senses and focused on games again. And it was tough going for a year or two, but they eventually, as we've discussed on our episodes, had a string of hits and got that going okay. So what Rich said about the failure of the productivity software playing a role in his departure, I don't think that's quite true because he did depart before it failed. But this does confirm that Rich really was trying to pivot the company in that new direction. And, of course, that direction was ultimately unsuccessful. So that's just a little more information on all of that. I'm sure I've probably learned some other things that we didn't cover in that episode from Dave and Joe Ibarra and some of the other people I talked to. But... Uh, We've got a lot of episodes to go through, so we'll leave it at that for now. And at some point, there should be an article if people want to learn more. Sure thing. Next, episode seven, History of the Arcade. Really nothing more to add here. Maybe I've learned a few new details of this or that, but the overview that we gave there was a pretty solid overview. I mean, and nothing's really changed in the last two years, or at least if something has changed, it's small and I haven't noticed it. So 
we can move on from that one. It was a good episode. It was. And one that goes hand in hand with it is episode eight, Birth of the Japanese Game Center. Yeah, again, I don't think there's really much there that I didn't already know or that we didn't already cover before. There there may be some minor tidbits. I'm sure there are, but we can just kind of leave that where it is as well. We did a pretty good job there. Then came our first time doing a two-parter, The History of Mediagenic, Part 1 and Part 2, Episodes 9 and 10, respectively. So there, there's only a little bit I want to say there. I haven't interviewed too many more people that were involved in all of that. I did, uh, as we talked about, I interviewed Joey Barra, who's an electronic arts guy, but then he also became an Activision, a mediagenic guy. So I got a little more information there, uh, particularly surrounding Infocom and the closing thereof, because he was actually placed in charge of Infocom during this difficult period. Joe was very skeptical that Infocom could be saved, but he was willing to give it a try. And this speaks to, despite the fact that Bruce Davis is vilified by the Infocom people who blame him for a lot of mistakes made during this time period. I think he was sincere about wanting Infocom to continue as a going concern. Now, uh, that may still mean that some of his decisions weren't right for the company. I mean, just because he may have wanted it to live doesn't mean that he necessarily went about it the right way. The fact that Joe was sent out there to try to keep this going. And the fact that even though he thought that this was going to be a tough thing to do, they they still went through with it, says that Bruce Davis wasn't just trying to kill the company at the first opportunity. Right. So there's that element. It's tricky being the CEO of a company because you have very, you have a lot of different duties. You have a duty to your shareholders to maximize their value. You have a duty to your board to be fiscally responsible. You have a duty to your customers to provide them with a product that they're going to enjoy. You have a duty to your employees to try to keep them employed. These are obviously all things that can cause cross-purposes. You know, one of the things that the Infocom people really don't like about what Bruce Davis did is he did initiate a lawsuit against the shareholders of Infocom because... He felt that they paid too much for the company. The company was acquired by Jim Levy, so Bruce Davis wasn't in charge of that. Obviously, that created a lot of bad blood with the Infocom people because the shareholders were also people working at Infocom. Some of them were. So, you know, people at Infocom were being sued by their own parent company. Well, that's bad for morale. But it was thought that Infocom kind of concealed just how bad a shape they were in. I mean, when Infocom was purchased, it's because they were falling apart because Cornerstone, the database, was a disaster and and this and that. And so the idea was that they paid too much for the company. Bruce has a duty to the shareholders not to squander their investment. There's a duty that if they're going to acquire a company, that they do so on an equitable deal. So is it bad for morale that he's suing them? Absolutely. Are there certain disadvantages to suing them? Absolutely. But he is answerable to the board, and the board is answerable to the shareholders. I mean, that's one of those things where even though it's awkward and bad, probably had to be done from a business perspective. And 
you know, I mean, the Infocom people have a right to be upset about that. I'm not invalidating their feelings, but it's very easy when you're in your own little corner to criticize the things that are happening to you in your own little corner. But sometimes the CEO does have to look at the bigger picture. And again, Bruce made mistakes. This is not to exonerate Bruce, just like with Atari, we're not trying to exonerate Ray. It's just trying to be a little more nuanced on (laughs) what a CEO does and what a CEO has to contend with. And really appreciate the difficulty of the situation and how hard it is to really navigate that kind of minefield. Right. So the other thing that Joe reveals about kind of the Infocom thing during this period is he felt if they were going to have a chance to save Infocom, that they had to broadly reshape it so that kind of all of their story-driven products at Activision were being done out of Infocom, not just traditional text adventures and not even just moving from text adventures to graphic adventures, but also doing RPG products and other story-driven content that was not strictly adventure games. The most ambitious thing he started while he was there was a full-blown Bard's Tale-like, because he was producer on Bard's Tale when he was at EA, Aliens RPG. Because Activision had the rights to the Aliens franchise. They released several Aliens games in this time period. He was really convinced that if anything was going to save Infocom as a going concern, that this was going to be the product that was going to do it. And it was fairly far along in development, and he was feeling fairly good about it. Then the programmer that they had subcontracted to, they had subcontracted this game to a company that was basically just this one guy, you know, programming, died during production. I don't know the name, but he died during the production. Oh, dear. And, I mean, this was like a one-man operation kind of thing. That was was like, that was the end of the game. Yeah, how do you get the code? How do you (laughs) know what you're doing? You'd have to train someone completely up. They probably have their own idea. They'd look at the code, and it's not commented, and they go, what's this? Yeah. So that was the end of the game. And as far as Ibarra was concerned, that was the end of any hope for Infocom. So, I mean, Joe Ibarra made the decision to shut it down. I mean, obviously, Bruce approved the decision, but it's... Bruce did not order Joe to shut it down. Joe was sent in to save it or kill it, depending on what he found there. And Joe made the decision to kill it, and Bruce backed up the decision to kill it. So they did. But there was that effort to save it, and Joe did have a plan to try to save it, but it just didn't work. And quite frankly, he was pessimistic even before he he got there that it was going to work. And he was a pretty experienced product guy by that point. And he was a product guy. I mean, he was a gamer going way back. I mean, we're not talking just video games. I mean, he was a big, big tabletop war gamer. Mm -hmm. He did D&D. He did the role-playing games. Chess Prodigy. I mean, he played those kind of games. So, I mean, he was a game player of all stripes. And he was a product guy. He was a producer at EA, but he was a producer that was very collaborative in game design. He would provide game ideas to the games that he was producing because he really loved games, understood games, got games. So this was a creative guy, not a programmer, but still a creative type that made the decision that this company was going to not work anymore. It wasn't just the heartless suit Bruce Davis making this decision. Joe was very important in that decision. So that's just a little more clarity on the whole Infocom part of Mediagenic. And since we already brought up role-playing games, how about the genesis of JRPGs? (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha. Well, we're probably doing this episode just a little 
too early, unfortunately, but there's always new things to be discovered. I don't really have anything to add to what we already have here. But uh, John Skispaniak is the author of two books of oral histories with Japanese game developers. He is in the process of writing the third, or rather finishing the transcription and translation of the interviews for the third. So there's not much writing involved. It's all layout editing and, and transcription translation. That book is hopefully coming out early next year. The third volume is going to have an interview with Yoshio Kia. Those that listen to this episode may remember that he was responsible for one of the very first Japanese proto-RPGs, Panorama Island, which we talked about a little bit. And he was also responsible for Dragon Slayer, one of the very, very, very early action RPGs. So I don't have any new information right now on this subject. But when that Kia interview hits, there very well might be some new and enlightening information. So just uh, an example of how our knowledge is always increasing. Definitely. Then we have our second two-parter, episodes 12 and 13. The History of Acclaim, The Rise, and The Fall. There's not too much to add here. I haven't really interviewed anyone additional from Acclaim. The one thing I'll add a little bit of information on, uh, there was a great article that just came out very recently on BMXXXX, which we talked about very briefly in the fall episode as the what in God's name were they thinking video game product that lost them their Dave Mira's license and lost them a lot of credibility and goodwill in the industry and was just a disaster all around. We can now partially answer the question, what in God's name were they thinking? Because there's been an article that's come out that's interviewed some of the people involved in that product. So basically what happened is, is it came about pretty much the way you would expect something this stupid to come about. The extreme sports field was getting more and more crowded. The Dave Muir BMX series had been one of the early entries in that, along with Tony Hawk from Activision. But now there were more and more extreme sports games coming out, and it was harder to stand out in the crowd. So they were having a brainstorming session of how do we make the next Dave Mirror game stand out in the crowd. And basically somebody said, just really probably joking, why don't we put strippers in the game? After everyone had a good laugh about that, they decided to do it. They must have been drunk. <laughs> so that's that's basically how it happened. And then it all went downhill from there. There's more in the article about what happened. We won't get into that on here. But <laughs> that's that's kind of the one interesting thing I've learned about Acclaim since since we did this two-part episode is how BMXXXX came about, which was just not a good idea in any way, shape, or form. So there you have it. <laughs> Next, we have episode 14, Nintendo Playing With Power. Yeah, which is uh, one of our most downloaded episodes, I think. So good for it. Woo-hoo! No, nothing really to add. I mean, I talked about in the interview episode how I've talked to more people since we did the interview episode. But most of those people I had talked to by the time we did this episode, I hadn't talked to Howard Lincoln yet when we did this episode. But the info that Howard Lincoln added, the understanding that Howard Lincoln added didn't really impact what we talked about here um i think this episode still uh speaks pretty well the nintendo story is pretty well documented the nes part of it at least there's really not much to add there all right on to episode 15 the story of chuck e cheese again when we did this episode i talked to gene landrum i talked to nolan bushnell i'd i'd read articles 
I think we did a very good overview of the whole Chuck E. Cheese thing. I will say one thing that I don't think we covered in the episode. This is something I have not done a great deal of research on yet, but it's something that has come to my attention recently. There was an animation division at Chuck E. Cheese called Cadabroscope. I don't remember if we mentioned it. If we did mention it, we just really mentioned it in passing. Apparently, the Cadabroscope division was experimenting with computer animation to some degree. But this division wasn't working out for them, and the company, you know, was in financial difficulty, which, of course, we talked about. So they ended up selling some of that Cadabroscope stuff to George Lucas. George Lucas integrated some of this material, some of this stuff that was going on at Cadabroscope, with his computer division. This being the division that essentially became Pixar. So I don't know how deep these links go or how important the Cadabroscope technology was to what Pixar did. It may not be that important. But it had the potential of being a genesis point. But there is actually a Nolan Bushnell slash Chuck E. Cheese connection, perhaps, to what became Pixar. So that's, that's an interesting new trivia thing, but more research really needs to be done on that. Next, we have episode 16, the early computer game platforms, the Trinity and the Disciples. I think we did a good job there. I mean, that was a pretty broad overview episode, and we broadly overviewed it. We can move on from there. Going hand in hand with that, we have Across the Pond, as they say. We have episode 17 and 18, the 8-bit British computer market, hardware and software. Again, these were very broad overview episodes. And when it comes to broad overview stuff, at this point, I don't tend to learn much more. What I tend to learn more about is the details. I I think the broad strokes of how at least I understand the industry probably hasn't changed much in two years. What's changed is the details. So we'll see as we go on that when it comes to a lot of these overview episodes, there's really nothing more to add at that level. So I think we can safely pass both of those by. Next, we have our big first three-part episode, something that started to become a tradition, with episodes 19, 20, and 21, The Great Video Game Crash. Again, I think we did this very well. I just want to add two things. First, I believe I mentioned this at the time. If I didn't, I'm mentioning it now, so it doesn't matter. I mentioned, I think, at the time that obviously E.T., is not as important a cause of the crash as a lot of people want to make it out to be. But despite that, every single executive you talk to who was there at the time labels the whole E.T. thing as something that was a significant part of the crash. So it it goes to the psychology. I'm not saying that they're right about that. I'm saying it goes to the psychology of the people who were there at the time. Part of the reason that E.T. has grown into such a legend is that it was just the impact of it was cemented in everyone's brains that was actually working in the industry at the time. Since this episode's aired, I've talked to a lot more people at some of these companies. I've talked to Ray Kassar since we did this episode. I talked to CFO Dennis Groth, CFO of Atari Dennis Groth since we did this episode. I talked to Mattel Electronics president. 
Josh Denham since we did this episode, Parker Brothers VP of Consumer Electronics, Rich Stearns, uh, James Morgan, bring that name up again. So I've talked to a lot more people that were there during the crash since we did this episode, and that has remained true. They all bring up E.T. And they bring it up unprompted. Precisely. It's not me asking them, so what about E.T.? E.T. comes up before I can ever mention it. So I just find that very interesting. Part of the reason it has such a high profile is because it's been imprinted on the psyches of these people, even if it's not as big a deal as you would think. I'll also add, I guess I'm adding slightly more than two things. I will just add something as well that Josh Denham told me when I interviewed him uh, regarding Mattel Electronics. He knew there was a problem in 1982 when Mattel Electronics was getting a billion dollars worth of orders from retailers. And remember, Mattel has probably a 15% market share. I mean, Atari is by far the leader. So Mattel has got an order for a billion dollars in inventory for 1982. And as he put it, we knew that had to be too high. We knew that this was more than the market could bear. But our problem was we didn't know what the right number was. So it wasn't just a matter of saying, well, they're saying a billion, but we know the market's really 600 million. So let's plan for that instead. Nobody really knew what the market was. Nobody knew what it was supposed to be. Even the people that knew there was something wrong didn't know how to fix it. And so this confusion, I mean, we already talked about how the retailers and the distributors were ordering more product than they needed. I mean, we talked about that in the episodes themselves. But what this does is it highlights the absolute confusion. There was no analyst in the world that knew what the right answer was. So, I mean, basically everyone had to roll the dice and, and, and hope. hope. <laughs> and as, as we saw and as we discussed, <laughs> came up snake eyes. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's an interesting insight from Josh Denham, Mattel Electronics president during this time period. The other thing I want to add is I had a hypothesis that there was an emphasis on all of the companies on home computers and that part of the reason that they missed the natural upgrade cycle at Mattel and at Atari and why Coleco, even though they had a new product at the right time and ColecoVision didn't give it the support they should have was because that they were all on to the home computer thing. Well, I've gotten some additional confirmation on that. I mean, certainly uh, Josh Denham, I, who I've talked to now, said that, you know, Mattel thought that the computers were definitely a, a direction that, that they needed to be in, which is why they did the Aquarius. But I also talked to James Morgan at Atari. He absolutely supported what Michael Moon told me. I've gotten conflicting information and we'll save some of the nitty gritty of this for when we recap our Atari episode. But I've gotten conflicting information on about how much Atari was focusing on computers at the expense of consoles. James Morgan, who came in in late 1983, so he's coming in to try to clean up the mess that's already in progress. He is absolutely of the opinion that Atari was pretty much exclusively focused on computers and had gotten way too involved in that part of the market, and that was their problem, and he felt it was his job to get them back into game consoles. So at least from James Morgan's perspective, Atari did take its eye off the console market and was 
really focusing on home computers. And I still think that that is a significant factor that has not really been discussed. And I think that my interview sources, for the most part, back that up. Episode 22, The Galaxy Game. So this is an example of an episode that we chose to do at the time we did it because I had just done one of my somewhat exclusive interviews, uh, in this case with Hugh Tuck, and got a hold of an original business plan for Hugh Tuck and Bill Pitts' company and all of that. So the revelation had already happened at the time that we did this episode, and so there's really no additional revelation that needs to be added to that. Okay, considering the title of the next episode, I hope there's no revelation for this one either. (laughs) Episode 23, The Complete Tetris Story. Still strikes me as pretty complete. There's still differing stories on who first brought the game to Nintendo's attention and some other subparts of the story, but... Yeah, Tetris has been done to death, so let's let's not do any more on Tetris. Even if there was some tiny little thing I discovered, it's it's just not worth it. This is one of our first recap episodes, which is episode 24, The Project and Others in the Field. Yeah, nothing much more to say there. Uh, Ethan Johnson, a friend of the show, continues to discover new and interesting interview subjects. Uh, he's been talking to a lot of people from Dave Nutting Associates recently, for instance, uh, and from other places as well, so that's great. Uh, I made a donation to The Strong of materials relating to Nutting Associates. That was kind of fun. Uh, Digitaland Aquarian still remains the best writer on video game history out there. Well, really, computer game history doesn't really touch consoles. So I encourage people to go read his blog, which is in the show notes for that episode. Oh, yeah, I met Richard uh, Garriott at Dragon Con. That was kind of cool. Another guy that I've been uh, talking to more recently is Ken Horowitz, who I'm sure many of you know as the webmaster of the very excellent Sega 16 website. We can put that website in the show notes for this episode, since that's not someone we talked about in the uh, previous episodes. Mm -hmm. Ken is certainly the foremost expert on Sega in the 16-bit era because he's run this website for many years and interviewed a lot of people that were at Sega. He put out a book on Sega of America, the history of Sega of America from 1986 through kind of the the end of the Dreamcast era when they stopped doing their own console development. Excellent book. Really, really well done. He did have a few errors in the kind of prelude or prologue section. He was focusing on Sega America from 86 on. He gave a very brief overview of Sega pre-1986 and As has been discussed on this very episode, (laughs) there's a lot of horrific misinformation about that. So certainly understandable why they're... Yeah, it it wasn't the main focus of his research. I I gave him a review on Amazon, and I think I gave him a five-star review. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was five stars. (laughs) I suppose I could check that, but I'll just, I'll live dangerously. And uh, it was a glowing review regardless. And I just happened to mention, you know, a couple of little things about the earlier days of the company. And so that caused him to reach out to me. And then we got to talking and he is finalizing a second book on Sega that is talking about the arcade history of the company, going all the way back to the beginning of the company, all this early history of Sega stuff that we've done on the podcast. And then all the way forward, uh, I don't know when it cuts off, but beyond the Dreamcast era, I mean, all the way kind of forward. So that's kind of his next big book project. 
myself and also Ethan Johnson, who's done some research in the trades and, and in the Japanese sources on this period, both provided information to him kind of on some of these earlier periods just to help him get this very convoluted timeline straight. Um, I think that's going to be an excellent book because uh, certainly his first one was. And uh, he was at Dragon Con and as a presenter, I was at Dragon Con just to enjoy the convention. And so uh, we got to meet him personally. He's from Puerto Rico. I uh, really hope he's been doing okay since the uh, the devastating hurricane down there. Yeah, Ken Horowitz, a great guy, another guy doing fantastic work in the field. And I am really looking forward to his book, which should be coming out sometime in early 2018. Episode 25, Mattel Electronics. So I have talked to a couple of people since we did this episode. I talked to Ed Krakauer, who was the first general manager of Mattel Electronics. And then I talked, as we said just a few minutes ago, to Josh Denham, who was the president of Mattel Electronics during the heyday of things there and then for the beginning of the collapse of it. Despite the the fact that I've talked to two very important people, there's really not much more to add to what we talked about in this episode, I don't think. I will say that Ed Krakauer did tell me that kind of how the Mattel Electronics thing got started is he and Jeffrey Rockless, who was the original president of Mattel Electronics, they noticed the handheld prototype that Richard Chang had done. Mike Katz says he's the one that commissioned Richard Chang to do it. Ed Krakauer doesn't know anything about that. He just knows that Richard Chang did it, and that's the point he knew about it. So he doesn't contradict Mike Katz's story that he's the one that got this rolling. It's just he also doesn't corroborate it. Ed Krakauer and Jeff Rockless were the two marketing executives at Mattel that saw this handheld that Chang had done, and, and they were the real champions of getting this electronics division going. Krakauer was the general manager and Rockless was the president basically because, as Krakauer put it, Rockless really wanted that president title and Krakauer just didn't care. <laughs> so <laughs> they were kind of equally important in getting the ball rolling. <laughs> but one was the president and one, of the, one was the general manager just for reasons. Josh Denham, uh, I mean, I, I learned some, some good things about Josh Denham, but all I'll add here is, is the same thing I said before. It's like they knew the market was overheated. They knew there was a problem with the numbers they were getting. It's just they, they didn't know what the right numbers were either, so they didn't really know how to compensate for what was going on. Next, we have another two-parter, the Magnavox Odyssey and the Magnavox patent lawsuits. I'm pretty comfortable with what we did with those episodes. I mean, certainly Ralph Baer's story with the Odyssey is pretty well-known and pretty well-discussed, so not really anything to add at this time. All right. Episode 28, Picking Up the Pieces, the U.S. Arcade Industry After the Crash. Again, we did a very good job there. We talked about kits and the Japanese getting more involved and all this good stuff, and there's, there's really nothing to add. Well, then we're just going to have to deal with 50 years of Namco. All right, so this, this is the first time that we decided, let's give a little more information right now, because... It was right after I did this episode that I got a little more information. And, you know, we're not really trying to keep everything current as we go, uh, which is why we're doing this big retrospective now. But because I learned stuff right afterwards, <laughs> we, we did, um, some of our more avid listeners may recall, a brief Namco update at the beginning of the next episode with, with special music and everything. 
Mm-hmm. Um, since then, I've even kind of sorted out the story even a little bit more than that. So I do want to briefly redo the founding of the company. We're not going to redo 50 years of Namco. We're just going to redo like five years of Namco. Fine. <laughs> so we can consider this, uh, this little bit to uh, supersede both the very beginning of the 50 years of Namco episode and the Namco update that we did <laughs> in the next episode after that. Some of this will not be new material, but I think the easiest way to do it is to just briefly summarize the whole kind of founding period of the company again. Sounds good. So Namco, of course, was established by Masaya Nakamura. Masaya's father, Yutaro Yakamura, had been a shotgun manufacturer before World War II. Another thing that he did on the side, this is new. Another thing that he did on the side as part of his gun manufacturing business before World War II is he did make some pop guns, some kind of toy guns for some of the rooftop amusement spaces that were being established by Kaichi Endo. We talked about Endo in our Japanese Game Center episode. He was perhaps the very first, but if not the first, one of the very first individuals to do coin-operated game spaces on the rooftops of Japanese department stores, which became a, a big thing, an important thing. Yutaro was actually doing some of that on the side, which is interesting. Uh, that was kind of their first brush, the Nakamura family's first brush with coin-operated amusements. This would have been in either the late 1930s or the early 1940s. The main business was the shotgun factory, and the shotgun factory was destroyed in World War II. Masaya Nakamura, as we talked about before, uh, he was very into the sea. He was very into ships. Uh, He really wanted to be a sailor or something like that, but apparently because of his weak eyesight or something, that was a a no-go. I don't know the details there. That's just something that's mentioned in some of the Japanese language sources. So he did the next best thing, which is became a shipbuilding engineer. He went to Yokohama University and got a degree in shipbuilding, (laughs) essentially. Uh, Couldn't get a job in that. He graduated in 48. Could not get a job in that. So he went to help his father, Yutaro, in his father's business. After the shotgun factory had gone away, he started a new air gun business. Selling, repairing, etc. I think it started with repairs and then went into sales, whatever. Air guns. So he had a shop in the Matsuya department store for air guns. And so Masaya Nakamura went and worked for his father. Did a little bit of everything. Helped keep the shop straight. Sweep the floors, design advertising posters, hang advertising flyers around the city, probably work behind the counter. I mean, he just did a little bit of everything because it's a small family business. At some point, because of the restrictive Japanese gun laws that were coming into play here in this time period, Japanese have always been pretty darn restrictive on gun ownership. They decide to kind of move into toy guns alongside the air guns kind of get involved in the toy business in that way. This is what gets Masai Nakamura thinking, okay, we're starting to entertain children. What else can we do to entertain children? I don't know, because I don't have any information on this. I don't know if part of the reason that he turned to coin-operated amusements is because he remembered back when he was a high school student, his father being involved in these uh, guns for these rooftop spaces. 
or what, but this is what leads Messiah Nakamura to decide that he wants to be involved in rooftop coin-operated amusements. His father is apparently completely against this. We talked uh, before about, you know, did his father and him go into business on Nakamura Manufacturing together? Did they start maybe by manufacturing guns before they did amusements? And that's why it's the manufacturing company, yada, yada, yada. I have better sources now than I did then. Some of the stuff that Ethan has found in Japanese language that he's doing these kind of hacky translations of that we, you know, used for the Konami episode. It does appear that this was a break with his father. Yutaro Nakamura did not want to be involved in this for whatever reason. And that is why Messiah Nakamura had to establish his own company in 1955, the Nakamura Manufacturing Company, in order to get involved in this because his father did not want to be involved. That part of it's a bit new. So as we discussed in that episode, the Namco episode, he started with a single location. He found a couple of secondhand horse rides from before the war, and he refurbished them. They were in kind of bad shape. Uh, he refurbished them and put them on the rooftop of the Matsuya store in Yokohama. Can't remember if in the episode we debated whether it was really the Matsuya in Yokohama or the one in Tokyo. We might have done because there was a period I was wondering if maybe he did that in Tokyo because his father's gun shop was in the Matsuya store in Tokyo. But it definitely was the one in Yokohama. I'm, I'm sure of that now. It may still be that because they were connected with Matsuya, generally may have been the reason that he knew that there was an opportunity to do that in Yokohama. I don't know. Or he could have just gone around all the department stores to see what was happening. Yokohama's not that far from Tokyo. Especially on Japan, which is relatively small. Right. But I mean, it's really close to Tokyo. So he did start with those two rides in that one location. Over the next few years, he did add a couple more locations, like literally maybe like two more locations. But I mean, this was a very small business until 1963, which, as we said before, is when he got the contract with Mitsukoshi, which was the big department store chain in Japan. They had him do a rooftop amusement space on their flagship store. That went well, and so then they gave him other stores, you know, the contract to put them up on other stores as well. And so that's what really made him a kind of big player in operation. So between 55 and 63, he existed, but he really wasn't doing much. Once again, makes me wonder, well, why was it called Nakamura Manufacturing if he really wasn't manufacturing much? I don't know. I mean, it could be a translation thing. I mean, technically, it's Nakamura Saisakusho in Japanese, which kind of means workhouse or work factory or something. So, I mean, it carries the connotation of manufacturing, but I imagine it doesn't necessarily have to strictly refer to doing mass production of stuff. I don't know. I don't know Japanese that well. You know, I, I still don't have a satisfactory answer for why they were the Nakamura Manufacturing Company before they were really manufacturing anything, but I am convinced now that. That they really weren't, you know, it, it really was just this small scale operating things a few places. Once he had a lot of department store rooftops, he was able to get equipment at a decent discount because he was ordering equipment in bulk. And because of that, he started ordering equipment for smaller operators as well. So he started as just an operator. Then when he became a bigger concern in the 60s, he became a distributor as well. And then somewhere around 1965 or 1966, he took the next step and became a manufacturer. 
Uh, we talked about the whole Periscope thing before. I don't really have anything to add there. We still don't know. Namco's own company records indicate that Periscope was created in 1965. I don't know how they get that date. I mean, when I say their company records, I don't know if they have invoices from 1965 sitting around in their archives. But the public-facing material that they have put out says that that was a 1965 game. Nakamura says that he created the first famous submarine game in Japan. Those were his words, or at least his words as translated in that Play Meter interview, which I believe we did discuss in this episode. If his was the first famous game, that implies it predates Sega. We have some additional information on Sega's Periscope now uh, that we didn't have when I did this episode, I believe. Sega definitely built their own version. Uh, The project started, I believe, in March 1966. That doesn't preclude them having copied the idea somehow from Namco. One theory that I have, which I probably mentioned the first time around, uh, which I can't prove, is that since Nakamura was running rooftop spaces and Nakamura had custom-built attractions before, I do wonder if maybe the first couple of periscopes they did in like 1965 were custom installations that were just installed in the department stores that they were operating, you know, not something they made generally available for sale. And Sega saw one of those and went into mass production on it. And then Namco, when they started doing more manufacturing, went into mass production on it. I think that's plausible, but it's not provable with the sources I have. So the jury's still out on that, but I did want to go over and clarify at least some of the early years of Namco because we kind of messed that up a little bit, made it a little convoluted when we did this the first time around. Well, it's certainly a lot less doomy. And speaking of doom, episode 30, doom. We did a good job there. Let's, uh, Let's leave those demons in hell where they belong. Fine. No portal hellgate for me. The new Doom's out on Switch now. I hear it plays very well on the Switch, and everyone's amazed that that's the case, because it's not supposed to be able to. So, good for Doom. That has absolutely nothing to do with id software stuff we talked about before, but there, we added something about Doom just for you, Jeff. Yay. Now we get to talk about an epic game. We did very well there. Um, there I'm sure there's more to learn about the epic story, but I haven't learned any more since then, so we can leave that be. All right. Next, we have episode 32, The History of the Atari Brand. Nothing really to add there. The French still own it. The French are still pimping the name out. Uh, anyone that went and saw Blade Runner 2049 would have seen a very large Atari logo. Of course, the Atari logo featured very prominently in the original Blade Runner. Uh, there's this idea, I can't remember if we mentioned it in that episode here or not, but there's the idea of the Blade Runner curse because Atari, Pan Am, and Coke all appeared as ads in Blade Runner, which took place in the no longer distant future. <laughs> 2019, I believe, right? I do not recall. I think so, because Blade Runner 2049 takes place 30 years later. So We can consult the I, Oracle. Nah, we'll live dangerously. So the, the 2019, you know, took place in, and, and it had uh, prominent corporate sponsorships because they wanted to show this idea the corporations are taking over of Pan Am, Atari, and Coca-Cola. So, of course, Pan Am goes bankrupt, Atari goes bankrupt, and Coke's doing fine today, but there was a period of time in the mid-80s when Coca-Cola was doing horribly compared to Pepsi with new Coke and, and all of that stuff. So, 
It was kind of called the Blade Runner curse because all these future corporations were not necessarily going to be corporations in 2019 anymore. At least it wasn't Demolition Man. (laughs) Yeah. Ah, Taco Bell. So, anyway, um, the Atari logo features very prominently in 2049 because they have to continue the story of this alternate universe. So Atari was alive and well in 2019. So Atari also has to be alive and well in 2049. I'm sure Atari was very happy to uh, pimp that out because they've been doing a lot of that kind of thing. They've also announced their so-called Atari box, which is supposed to be some kind of retro console thing. Uh, There's not a lot of details on it, but it's some kind of emulation box that probably isn't all that exciting. But, you know, so they're still there. They're still not doing much. They're still French. Moving on. Well, we can always cover the saga of Sega. Ken Horowitz's book coming out early 2018. Should be some good stuff on that period in there. Alrighty. What about episode 34, The Nutting Associates? So this was one of those cases where we did the episode and then I was like, why did we already do a Nutting Associates episode? Because it was just a couple of months after we did this episode that I talked to Craig Nutting and Claire Nutting. Which may have had some information you wanted to convey. Pretty much, both in terms of what they told me and the box of nutting materials that Claire Nutting very generously shipped to me, which I then donated to the Strong in Rochester. So this is an episode that we'll dwell on for a few minutes here. (laughs) Bill Nutting was, as we talked about, I believe, in the episode itself, from a moneyed Chicago family. His father and grandfather were both high-level executives at Marshall Field's department store. Claire Nutting was also from a very well-off Chicago-area family. Her father was a prominent vice president at Revereware, manufacturer. They did know each other as as children. They grew up together. They were high school sweethearts. They ended up getting married. We talked about a lot of that because I did have some of that information. They decided to move to California. I didn't know this because... They didn't want to be bound by the traditions and the obligations that would have been thrust upon them if they stayed in Chicago around their family. So, I mean, they they liked their families. It's not that they never wanted to see their parents again. Far from it. It's just they didn't want to have to be there. So this is why they moved to California. They they went to school in Colorado, uh, and then they moved out to California. The reason that he briefly moved back to Chicago, we, we discussed where he went and, and we mentioned that he did go back to Chicago, is they did decide that they missed their family. And so they did briefly go back to Chicago and then I guess they basically realized why they had left in the first place. And so they went back to California. Bill Nutting had always wanted to be an entrepreneur, found his own business. I, I got this from Claire. This is not stuff I knew when we did this episode. He was torn on what kind of business to be involved in. His father, who he was close to, was in retail. His father-in-law, who I believe he was also close to, was in manufacturing. So he was uncertain where he wanted to be, and this is part of the reason why he did both before he was an entrepreneur. He started out with remanufacturing. He was at a manufacturing company, and then he decided to go to, uh, to be a buyer for a department store. Retail. So he did both, and it was partially because he had both of these influences in his life from father figures essentially. I now know how he got involved with edX or edX, however it's pronounced. We may remember this is the educational company that put out the knowledge computer, which was the prototype for computer quiz and and all of that. 
his father-in-law, the Revereware guy, Claire's father, had retired out to California. So he was in California. And he was friends with Eugene Kleiner. Eugene Kleiner was the founder of Edex. And so it was the father-in-law that learned that Kleiner, who had been one of the traitorous eight that had founded Fairchild Semiconductor, was establishing this new educational company and needed investors. And he also presented the opportunity to Bill, who then also invested. So that's how he got involved with Edex. That's one of the things I didn't know before. But uh, thanks to my interview with Claire, I now know the story there. So that's good. He got the, the knowledge computer rights himself because, uh, as we discussed, Edex was bought out by Raytheon, major defense contractor, and, and they just didn't want it. And Bill saw this as his opportunity, uh, according to Claire, because Bill did want to establish his own company when the time was right. He had been leading the marketing on this product. He was already familiar with the product. And so he took the plunge and bought up the rights and used this as a basis to establish his own business. He sold some knowledge computers in 1965. We know that from Billboard through something he called Nutting Corporation, which we're not very clear on what that is. There may not even been a Nutting Corporation. I mean, Billboard, when it comes to some of those minor details, sometimes gets them wrong. (laughs) So uh, there may not even been a Nutting Corporation, but that's the only reference to it. I now know for a fact that Nutting Associates was established in January of 1966. We most likely in the Nutting Associates episode, I don't remember because why would I listen to these episodes? I recorded them. (laughs) Um, We probably went with the date of February 1967 because that's when the company was incorporated. We talked earlier in the episode how you can always tell when a corporation was established because you go to the Secretary of State's office and you see when the articles were filed. And the California stuff's online. The articles themselves aren't online, but the index with the dates and everything is online. So we know Nutting Associates was incorporated, became a corporation in February 67. We now know it was founded in January 1966. And we know that because one of the things that was in the donation that Claire gave to me was an employee handbook for Nutting Associates from, I think, 1968. There's a very, very brief, it's not very enlightening on the whole, but a very, very brief corporate history of Nutting Associates on the first page of this thing. And that says they were founded in January 1966. I'm going to assume that the people at Nutting Associates in 1968 were aware of when their company was founded. I'm going to assume that's accurate. Pretty safe bet with a two-year lead time. Mm Mm-hmm. So the other thing that there's been a lot more information on is the whole Bill and Dave thing. A lot more information. And this comes from not only my own interviews with Claire and a recent interview that I was able to do with Dave Nutting. It also comes from some additional follow-up work that Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, did with Dave Nutting's early business partners, Gene Wagner and Harold Montgomery. He's actually interviewed both of them, uh, very interesting interviews. And after some of this material came to light, he asked them a couple of follow-up questions that further clarified some of things here. Turns out there's a lot of bad blood, actually, between Bill and Dave. This is important. It's a sibling rivalry kind of thing. According to the Bill and Claire side of this story, and so this is just their recollection of it, Bill was the favorite. There were four Nutting brothers, and Bill was kind of always the favorite, and Claire was kind of the favorite spouse. So this caused some conflict and some tension amongst brothers as it can. I mean, 
there's nothing wrong with that. That's just that's just humanity, <laughs> you know. It appears now, from what we know from Claire and from what we know from Harold Montgomery, that there was never a formal partnership between Bill and Dave. Dave kind of always presented it as they were going to go into business together because Dave was an industrial designer and could redesign the machine and, you know, Bill needed that help. It now looks like, I'm fairly certain, I can't be positive, but I'm fairly certain that what happened is Dave learned about Bill's plans because they are brothers and that Dave wanted to insert himself into this business. Dave is an industrial designer. Dave does know how to do these things. And the knowledge computer needed a redesign. It was just, it was too clunky. It, it wasn't easy to service in the field. It really wasn't built well to be an arcade machine. Dave knew that he could do a redesign. And he thought that he could then be a part of Bill's company if he did this redesign. Uh, he went to Harold Montgomery, his good friend who was an electrical engineer, because he needed an engineer, because he is an industrial designer. And said, hey, why don't, we, why don't we take a shot at this? Why don't we design this thing? So they did. And then they were going to present that to Bill. Now, there's still some confusion about the exact nature of Bill and Dave's relationship. Because Dave, whom, as I said, I've also interviewed, still maintains that Bill came to him and asked him to do this redesign. And there is some other evidence that does point to his version being somewhat true. Gene Wagner tells uh, of a meeting with Bill and Dave and Harold going over how best to redesign it. It could be that for a period of time, Bill was at the very least stringing Dave along. He might have been uncomfortable about going into business with him, but might have been humoring him. It's not clear at this point. It probably never will be. Of course, as Dave tells the story and he's told the story, and I think we talked about this in our previous episode, Dave says that it was Claire that put an end to it all that Claire threatened to divorce Bill if he went into business with his brother. This has been Dave's story for decades, and it remains his story today. I mean, this is what he told me when I interviewed him just recently. That is almost certainly false. And when I say almost certainly, I mean 99.9 repeating. That is almost certainly false. I see no indication. I mean, obviously, Claire doesn't remember it that way. But I mean, even aside from that, I see no indication. They were married for something like 60 years. They raised three children together. Uh, The children, I mean, Craig remembers a happy household. Nobody remembers an unhappy household. They were deeply religious people, which, again, makes it highly unlikely that, I mean, religious people who get divorced sometime too, but makes it even more unlikely that they would divorce on a whim like that. They seem like they were a very happy couple. It would be incredibly petty for her to divorce over something relatively minor like this. Exactly. Claire read me a portion of a letter. So Bill's passed on. I mean, I, I, which is why I never got a chance to talk to him. Claire read me a portion of a letter. She did not include this letter in the uh, materials, but she read a portion of it to me on the phone. So this is from Claire. I mean, this is from this side of the family. There's different perspectives. Bill actually wrote a letter to Craig once explaining some of the rift between Bill and Dave. These are Bill's own words as conveyed to me by Claire from this letter. I mean, I didn't see this letter myself, so technically I didn't verify that it was there, but I'll stand by it. (laughs) I'll stand by it that this is a real letter. What Bill told Craig is that Dave really wanted to be part of this business. 
But Bill was very uncomfortable with the idea of going into business with Dave because there was this kind of sibling rivalry stuff going on. So the way Bill puts it is that he made the decision that he was uncomfortable about going into business with his brother and did not want to do it. Claire was a member of the board of Nutting Associates. So in that sense, she played a role in the decision. But it was very clear that this was Bill's decision, and it was based on the past history that the brothers had together. That is what did it. It wasn't Claire interfering or being controlling. That's how Dave says it, is that she was controlling and was manipulating things. But I do believe there's some bad blood between both Dave and Claire and Dave's wife and Claire. So, you know, I mean, this is family stuff, so it's messy. The the truth may be somewhere in between the two perspectives, but Dave's telling, which has been the story of record with the threat to divorce and all of this, seems to not be right at all. Harold remembers that he and Dave went out to California because you may recall that they're based in Milwaukee. They went out to California once they had a kind of plan and prototype sketches and whatnot in place to kind of do the final presentation to see if they could all be on board together. Harold remembers Claire being the one doing all the talking, which may play into some of the story. Basically, they tried to talk about it at dinner, and Claire was like, no talking business, hit the dinner table kind of thing, kind of shut them down. And then later, it was Claire who came to them and said, no, we're not doing this. And that may be because, uh, assuming Harold's remembering correctly, that just may be because, you know, the brother thing again, it might have been easier for Bill to have Claire deliver the news than for Bill to face his brother himself to deliver the news. I don't know. So that's what Harold remembers of the the meeting where it became clear that they were not going to be doing this thing together. And that's the point then that Bill Nutting contracted marketing services where Richard Ball was and Richard Ball did the redesign. We, we talked about all of that. So we've been a while talking because at that time we had just discovered some Cashbox articles, me and Ethan Johnson, and we were going, kind of going back and forth. Were Dave and Bill ever in business? There was this Cashbox article that said this, yada, yada, yada. We spent some time on that. So I want to say unequivocally now, certainly Bill and Dave were never in partnership. There was a period where a partnership may have happened, but... It was more negotiations, nothing that was set in stone. We are a partner. Exactly. So the other thing that we now know is basically once Bill had his version of the machine, the computer quiz, the first thing he tried to do is he tried to do it on a franchise system. And one of the things that I got in the, the donations that the Strong has now is actually some of the franchise agreement and marketing materials. So he originally tried a franchise system. He was not going through the traditional three tiered system of the coin op industry. He was actually trying to, to sell fr- computer quiz franchises, like he would sell a McDonald's franchise or something. He tried that for about a year. He got a few hundred out, I think, but it wasn't going that well. And he was probably, this is speculation on my part, but he was probably starting to get some pressure from <laughs> local distributors and operators being like, what are you doing with this coin op machine in my territory? Because, I mean, these were territorial companies. We've talked about the exclusivity and all of this stuff with the Atari stuff. I mean, these people took their territory seriously. And some of them were probably less than savory. I mean, <laughs> if there was any mafia involvement in the coin op industry, and I don't think there was much, but if there was any, it was at the operator level, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. He finally, in, in late 1967, decides that he has to go through the traditional coin-op industry. He plays it off, like in, in the trades and whatnot. He plays it off as, we have completed our year-run uh, testing, our year-long testing of the machine, and are now ready to debut it to you, the distributor. 
really it wasn't a year long testing. It was he was doing franchising and that wasn't working out. And so he was playing nice to the coin op industry by being, yeah, that was just a test run. Nod, nod, wink, wink. That's kind of the story of why this thing was floating around for so long before the 1967 official debut. It's because he was franchising them before that. That's kind of what I wanted to update. That was the important stuff that I gathered from interviewing Claire and Craig. Some very important new details there. Well, speaking of brothers, there's always lots of conflict that happens when they're teenagers. So we have EA, the teenage years. I am very comfortable on the whole with what we did there. There's one thing I would like to add there. I've actually done a second interview with Don Traeger. I did that for the EA stuff that I'm working on now. I interviewed Don Traeger way back in 2009. Long time ago. I was young and innocent then. (laughs) It was one of my early interviews. I got some good info in that interview, but I wasn't as good at it then as I am now. We already talked about Don Traeger's role in kind of EA sports and all of that. We did that for this teenage years, I think. One other thing that he said in this interview that I thought was interesting, I think is probably true, is he takes a lot of credit for getting EA more mainstream. A lot of the early EA product was RPGs and strategy games and all of that kind of stuff, which was a little esoteric. Now, that doesn't mean some of them didn't do very well. Pinball Construction set 300,000 units, Bard's Tale 300,000 units, and they had the early sports games. There were sports games before Don Traeger got there, like Jordan vs. Bird, which did like three or 400,000 units. It's not like they didn't do anything successful. But if you look at a lot of the product in the 83, 84, 85 period, a lot of it is a little more esoteric. And Don Traeger came from Atari, from Coinop and Atari specifically. He was a, a product manager there. He was more in tune with kind of the, the action And the sports stuff, like I said, they'd done some sports, but that's really where his interest was. And he didn't feel like a lot of the producers that were there at that time were really interested in that kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff is a is a little more mainstream. And so Don Traeger personally takes a lot of credit for pushing EA into some of these more mainstream genres. And I do think there's some truth to that. I mean, obviously, this is him tooting his own horn, but. I do think there's some truth to that because he managed the development of the first internally developed game, Skate or Die, which was kind of a takeoff on the games series that Epix was doing. I think we talked about that. But, you know, this is more action and more sportsy and a little different from a lot of what EA was doing. And certainly, even though they had sports games before him, he was pushing a lot of sports product in the late 80s and early 90s as well in the formation of this EA sports thing. This is just to give a little bit of a shout out to Don Traeger's role in taking EA into some of the genres that helped make them very successful. Other than that, I think we did a very good job of covering this period first time around. Episode 36, Rating IDOS. We can leave that be. I haven't really done any more work on IDOS Interactive. 37, Nintendo and Gunpei Yokoi. Once again, I think we covered that very well origin story. We've really done all we can. Uh, I mentioned that I met Richard Garriott at Dragon Con. While I was there, I did get contact information for his brother, Robert Garriott, who is the CEO of the company that isn't interviewed as much. They were going through a few things at that time. This is about the time Hurricane Harvey hit, and they've still got a lot of Houston ties. 
So um, I have put off doing a formal interview request, but I'm hopeful, fingers crossed, that I can get Robert Garriott at some point. And at that time, there may be something new to say about Origin. Next is another two-parter, Online Systems and Sierra Online. So at this point, we are getting close to the present, relatively close to the present. There really isn't anything more, I don't think, to say on any of these podcast topics that we've covered from Sierra Online forward, with the giant exception of saying a little more in our three-part Atari episode related to what I learned from James Morgan. So I think Four-part. Yes, I'm sorry. To our four-part Atari episode with James Morgan. So I think we can end the podcast by talking a little bit about that. There are only a few things. I mean, James Morgan was only there for about nine months, so there's not a huge amount to say. But I do want to say a few things. One of the things that we talked about was why did the person that seemed very much to be the heir apparent at Philip Morris... He was a brilliant marketer who grew their market share from something like 3% to 70% or something ridiculous like that. I mean, he had a reputation as a great marketer, and, and Philip Morris was very much a, a family, so to speak, as, as a corporation. And he was going to probably be the CEO someday. Why would he leave that? Well, now I know why. He was bored. I mean, that's often a reason that, that people leave one company and go to another when they're you know at, at the corporate VP level and they have that luxury. <laughs> Uh, He was bored. I mean, he'd done a lot there, but there was only so much you could do with cigarette marketing. (laughs) And especially cigarette marketing that involves regulations of the government going, yeah, we're going to make this harder and harder and harder. Well, they weren't really at that time. Uh, This is the early 80s. That's before all that. You know, he he was just bored. He kind of knew what the routine was there, and there was really no place left to grow. And he'd been headhunted before because he was a very successful marketing executive. He never really took the meetings. It just so happened this time that the headhunter in question, the headhunter that was working for Warner to find the new CEO, was a personal friend, I believe, of his father. And so he knew this headhunter. And so this headhunter basically called him up and said, I have a once in a lifetime opportunity for you. You need to take this meeting. So he did. It's interesting. Warner, according to to Morgan, thought that they had a marketing problem. They thought they needed a brilliant marketer to turn around the Atari brand. Obviously, Ray had a, a reputation as a pretty decent marketer with Burlington. So, I mean, he was somebody who was brought in for marketing as well. They thought they needed a marketer. And so that's why Warner was interested in James Morgan. Because they wanted a brilliant marketer to kind of salvage the brand that had been damaged in this whole uh, crash situation. Well, as James Morgan puts it, they were wrong. (laughs) They didn't need a marketer. That's what they thought they needed, but they didn't need that. They needed a hatchet man. They needed someone that would just come in and gut the company and, you know, just basically rebuild it from scratch. In James Morgan's own words, he was not that guy. I mean, that is not what he was good at. Uh, He did not want to fire everybody. He got caught in the trap that all well-meaning CEOs get caught in. (laughs) Not all CEOs get caught in it, just the well-meaning ones. He didn't want to lay everybody off. He felt bad about that. CEOs actually often feel bad about that kind of thing. (laughs) 
despite popular opinion. <laughs> so he was trying to lay off just enough to write the ship. And it was never just enough to write the ship, write the ship. So they went through several rounds of layoffs until finally in early to mid 1984, he finally decided, OK, we've got to do the big one. We, we've just got to take this down. That's the point where he basically did finally plan to gut the company. They were going to create this thing called the new Atari company or Natco, which was basically we're creating a company within the company and we're going to ask certain people to join the company within the company and then we're going to cut everything else loose. I mean, he was going to take it down to like 100 employees or something like that. I mean, this was the final plan. He waited too long and, and he admits that himself. I mean, he waited too long. They needed a hatchet man, and he was not a hatchet man. And, and James Morgan will be the first person to tell you that. I mean, he's, he's upfront about that. Especially if he brought in and he's being told, we need marketing. He goes mm-hmm. and looks at it. He goes around, starts doing marketing things, then goes, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, he says costs were out of control, and I can believe that. I mean, it was a $2 billion company, and it was spending money like a $2 billion company. <laughs> Problem was, it was no longer really a $2 billion company. It had the revenue of a $100 million company. Or something, you know. Yeah, so that was a problem. The other thing he told me is, is what I alluded to in the crash episode. They were focused on the home computer. I mean, that is his evaluation. Maybe someone else would disagree, but his evaluation was that they had pretty much focused exclusively on the home computer. This corroborates what Michael Moon said. Michael Moon said that he was in a meeting with the Warner office of the president, which is multiple people, and that they told him, we're going to ride this video game thing out and then we're going to be in home computers. James Morgan wasn't in this meeting. I think this is before James Morgan arrived, but James Morgan is basically saying the same thing. This is a company that saw the future in computers and was heavily invested in computers, and they just weren't giving the console market the attention it needed. That's James Morgan's perspective. So he felt his job was to get them out of all the computer stuff and get them back on consoles, which, of course, was the 7800, which came from General Computer Corporation. That's the other thing that's kind of telling here is that. The next generation Atari system, the 7800, was not created by Atari. It was created by General Computer Corporation entirely on their own just because they wanted to do it. And then once they had it, they took it to Warner because they were working as a contractor for Warner on arcade games and console games both. They took it to Warner and said, look at this thing we've made. And Warner was like, "Okay, we'll do that. And, you know, the deal was made with Warner, but then was going to be through Atari. Obviously, part of the reason why they didn't have another console ready to go is because they thought the 5200 was their next-gen system, and it wasn't. But again, we have to remember that the 5200, part of the reason it was hamstrung, is because the computer division forced the console division to use their three-year-old technology to create the 5200. So again, you've got that computer-console conflict. So it really does seem like the computer thing was a big part of the problem. Now, there are still voices on the other side that feel like they didn't go into computers. Ray Kassar claims that Warner stopped them from getting heavily involved in computers. I've talked to Manny Gerard now. I hadn't talked to Manny when we did this episode. Manny says that's nonsense. Manny doesn't remember Warner pushing computers above consoles. There's still a bit of a disconnect because Manny's remembering something different from Michael Moon and, and James Morgan. But he says, absolutely not. We never tried to stop Atari from becoming more involved in computers. That was never a directive from the office of the president. He was very vehement about that. 
Ray remembers several things differently from other people, partially probably because he's, I mean, he's 89. I mean, fine. I don't ascribe any motive to that. It's just, it was a long time ago and he's very old. That's not the only detail that Ray remembers a little differently from other people. So I'm inclined to believe Manny on that one, that Warner was not sabotaging home computer efforts. Now, like I said, Manny doesn't remember them emphasizing it either, but we do have a couple of other people that say they were. So I'm still confident, even though there is dissension, it would be great to have some internal corporate documents or to be able to talk to home computer president Roger Bodisher, whom I've tried contacting several times to no success. (laughs) It would be nice to have that additional information to see what other people remember or what the actual documents themselves, which may or may not still exist, say on this matter. But I'm continuing to feel comfortable with this thesis that the reason that Atari did not effectively transition from the 2600 was not because marketing screwed it all up and were more concerned about making money on the VCS than planning for the future, but because Warner and Atari decided to place a greater emphasis on home computers and lost sight of the console market. And Morgan thought that was an absolute mistake. He was like, There's no way that a video game company like Atari is ever really going to compete with Commodore and Apple because those guys are specializing in computers. And it turns out he was right. Could Atari have competed in those fields if they had had less conflicting uh, priorities on home computers? Maybe. I mean, we talked a little bit about how they never really did a good job of marketing (laughs) their their home computers. But, I mean, it, it is true that they didn't have much success against the actual computer companies. So... Maybe he was right about that. Certainly he was right that the country was going to embrace a new video game console at some point because the country did embrace the Nintendo Entertainment System (laughs) a couple years later. They may not have been ready to embrace a new system in 1984 when he was going to launch the 7800, but the public was not worn out on video games. So Morgan's ideas on this, I don't think were altogether wrong. The problem was twofold. One was the failure to lay people off fast enough, which meant that they were, uh, you know, losing money continually. The other is just that uh, is tied to that because Atari was losing money continuously. The Warner stock price was deflating. We talked about uh, the takeover attempt by Rupert Murdoch and all of that. So Warner could not afford to wait for the ship to be righted anymore. If Morgan had laid everyone off right away so that Atari was either barely profitable or at least only had a small loss, maybe he would have been given the breathing room he needed to finish riding the ship, but it just wasn't to be. So it came to a head when he made his ask for the holiday season. He said it was going to, uh, he was going to need $100 million to market and sell the, the line, the new 7800 system and all of that. In the 1984 holiday season, Warner at this point was in such bad shape. I mean, the situation wasn't dire at Warner, but I mean, the movies and the music were not doing that great in this time period. I mean, Atari was really driving everything and now Atari was in trouble. That was enough of an ask that it was going to be something of a bet the company move, not that Warner itself would have ceased to be. But I think more that if this failed, that would depress the stock so much that at this point, there was no way Steve Ross was going to stay in control. Not that Warner would go away, but that Warner would not be Steve Ross's company anymore. And so that $100 million ask was just too much. Warner was not willing to bet the company on a new video game system when the market was falling apart and all the analysts were saying it was crazy for Atari to try to introduce a new video game system. 
So that's when they started looking for someone to sell it to. And that's when they ended up selling to Jack Trammell. So there's all the information on the James Morgan years that would have been great to include in the fourth part of that Atari extravaganza. But at least we get to include it now. And that's why we do this. (laughs) Well, that's pretty much it. A major recap of the entire podcast, which means we're going to have to do something new and exciting in the new year, January 2018. What is it, Alex? Well, I think we should go back to Japan. Obviously, we cover Japan less than other markets just because of the difficulty with sourcing. We've mentioned before, particularly with the Konami episode, how Ethan Johnson has been at least gathering a couple of interesting sources from Japan and doing kind of hacky translations somewhere between a Google Translate and a proper translation. So a lot of it's gibberish, but it's still enough that you can pick up some things. One thing I found very interesting when reading through this material is kind of the birth, the real birth of the Japanese arcade video game industry. Now, some of this will be a little bit of rehash from our Japanese Game Center episode, but not all of it. Because what's interesting is in the United States during the Golden Age, there were six arcade manufacturers of any note. There were a few smaller ones than that, too, but basically a big six. Japan, there were like a dozen or so of them. I mean, there were a huge number of them. And how does a a country that small support that many? Well, the reason is, is these companies looked out for each other and they licensed to each other. And basically what happened is there was a series of massively hit games. Space Invaders was the biggest one, but on either side of Space Invaders was Breakout and Head On. And these two games were also rather big, even though they weren't as big as Space Invaders. These games and the cross-licensing of these games is what kind of created the environment in which so many Japanese arcade companies could flourish. So I thought we would just take a, a quick look at that and how kind of this Japanese video game industry kind of emerged out of these quick boom-bust cycles at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s. And with that, we hope you guys have a good holiday season, and we'll see you next year on They Create World. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Send us feedback at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. And follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. (laughs) 